My friend John Newton wrote a Christmas hymn called Praise for the Incarnation. Praise for the Incarnation. And the last two lines of this hymn, he says this. All her hopes my spirit owes to his birth and cross in shame. All her hopes my spirit owes to his birth and cross in shame. It's a beautiful line. I think it well sums up the tone of worship in this particular song. But as I read that line, I was thinking about the practical reality that we all face living in New Jersey here at the end of 2022, right? Christmas season is upon us. We've all got a lot going on. There's family stuff going on. Maybe you're trying to finish up your semester at school. Maybe you've got uh, work things going on. Maybe there are question marks, you know, physical health challenges, financial challenges, emotional struggles. And I just thought, do all my hopes really rest on Jesus' birth, his cross, and his shame? Meaning, is, is my heart genuinely longing for Christ? Or are there other things that I would settle for, like a hefty raise? Maybe an upgrade to that car that's getting older. Maybe finally getting the new iPhone. Oh, by the way, there's a new iPhone coming out next year. I don't know if you heard. If I could just have that, that relationship, if I could just be married or have this, these, this many kids or these kinds of kids, if I could just have, right? I mean, we're longing for so much, but I just wonder, do all, do all my hopes really rest on Christ? We could ask the question this morning, what are we longing for? What are we looking for? I don't know how the tradition was in your family growing up or your family now, but um, when our kids were smaller and we had a special guest coming over, there was always that extra excitement anticipating the arrival of the guest. And man, uh, the, the lookout spot at our house was uh, on, the, on the couch looking out the windows to the front, right? That couch took a beating, right? Because whenever somebody special was coming over, there were a lot of humans trying to, like, you know, take that spot and sit on that couch and to be, you know, full disclosure, maybe a dog every now and then, uh, you know, trying to look out that window to see who was going to arrive and, and wait for the car to come driving down the road. Oh, they're finally here, right? The lookout spot. If you've ever been to the Morgan's house, Pastor Jesse's house, uh, they've got this epic bay window right above their driveway, and their kid's just like... They're just there. It's so awesome. Like, and you have to honk, you know, or else it's like the, the cycle's incomplete and then it messes everything up because that's their lookout spot because they're so excited for who's coming. They're so, there's so much anticipation. Well, I just give you that example to prove the point that we all spend time and energy looking for what's next, excited for what's coming. And maybe we're not like kids looking out the window, waiting for grandma and grandpa to arrive or whoever, but we are all spending our, our time and energy Reaching, longing, looking. It's like, you know, that desire for the next phase of life, perhaps. Oh, I'm finally going to graduate, and then I'll be, I'm finally going to get my driver's license, and then I'll have the freedom to, and then I'll, I'm finally going to get married, and then I'll, I'm finally going to have that, that college degree, or I'm finally going to have that job, or I'm finally going to, and finally going to retire, and the kids are finally going to treat me right now, or you know, whatever, right? I mean, I'm finally going to, I'm finally going to. You see, we are all longing for something. And at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he introduces us to Jesus in a particular way. 
He introduces us to Jesus as the long-awaited Savior. He says, listen, just so we're all clear, the story doesn't start in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And so he gives us a genealogy. Now, again, we, we might struggle with the genealogies in the Bible, but everyone is in there for a reason, okay? And uh, this particular genealogy, it helps us get from point A to point B, right? Where, 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 are, where, where were we and where are we? And as we'll see this morning, Matthew's going to start talking about Jesus being the descendant of Abraham and the descendant of David. But the conclusion, the arrival point, is that the Messiah is actually here. He'd arrived on earth. And so we're going to talk about this Old Testament history with Abraham and David and on throughout the ages. Then we're going to arrive at, at the birth of Jesus and his actual coming and fulfillment of God's promises. So the genealogy serves as a history of the Messiah. This genealogy is given to us in three really nice parts. There's just three chunks. So we'll go through it in those three chunks or three acts as we review uh, Israel's history waiting for the Messiah. I just want to encourage you that the genealogy is not meant to be a flat, boring list of names. Now, it's not maybe, maybe meant to be a history lesson either. It's just meant to remind us of God's faithfulness throughout the generations to fulfill his promises. And just so we're all clear, that's exactly what the main point is today, that Jesus fulfills all of God's promises. Jesus fulfills all of God's promises. God is the author of history, and as the second person of the Trinity took on flesh for us, those promises that God had made in the Old Testament had come to their blessed fulfillment. So all our hopes really do rest on or owe or depend on Jesus and his birth, his cross, and his shame. But it all starts with his birth. So we start there in Matthew uh, with the genealogy. So let's take a look at chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll, we'll go through this list and see how it applies to us. Matthew starts his gospel by saying this, this is an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Okay, so a couple notes here on verse 1. First of all, the, the phrasing there, an account of the genealogy, that, that probably refers to the birth narrative chunk of Matthew. Some people think it refers to the whole gospel. I think it's more likely it refers to the birth narrative part. But either way, uh, we're getting the background of Jesus Christ. Now, we say it often, but it's worth reminding uh, everyone that, that the title Christ is not, of course, Jesus' last name. It's not a family name. It is actually that, that title from the Old Testament. The word Christ is simply the Greek version of the word Messiah, okay, the anointed one. And so when Matthew writes Jesus Christ here, probably especially in light of, of the genealogy, we're supposed to understand that as Jesus the Messiah. And every once in a while, a translation will actually translate it that way, Jesus the Messiah. Well, who's the Messiah? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's exactly what the genealogy is all about. The Messiah is that promised descendant of, in verse 1, David and Abraham, okay? Going in reverse chronological order there. So we're, we're arriving with Jesus, the Messiah, but it goes back to God's promises to David and then further back to God's promises to Abraham. If you read Luke's gospel, his genealogy goes all the way back to creation, but Matthew is content to stop with Abraham because he's focusing on the way Jesus fulfills God's promises to Abraham and to David. And so that's where the genealogy is oriented. So right away on the, in, in, on the first page of the New Testament, you have this strong connection to what had come before in the Old Testament. Matthew says, listen, the story doesn't start here. We go back to what God promised to David and what God promised to Abraham. 
So in the first chunk, we have uh, the run from Abraham up to David. And then we pick it up in verse 2 there. And uh, there we read, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. If you pause there, verse 2, we won't do this for every verse, but for uh, several of these verses, we'll just kind of highlight some of this history. And if you have flannel graph in your background, you're blessed because you can probably pick up a lot of this uh, out of those flannel graph memories. But verse 2 summarizes the patriarchal, the patriarchal period back in Genesis. So we're meant to think of the beginning of the story of Israel. So if you read in Genesis, of course, God uh, creates the, the earth. He creates humanity. Sin enters the world. We have the consequences from sin breaking the, the world. But then we also have the promise that God will provide a deliverer through a descendant of Eve. But it's not long before we realize humanity is, is, is really broken. And so in the time of Noah, God had to judge the world. And yet again, there's that promise of his grace and, and his continued work. And so after the, the narrative about Noah, we immediately come to the story about this guy. Abram and his family, who will be called Abraham, the father of many. And God makes promises to Abraham. In fact, that's where Abraham's story starts. It starts with God making promises to him, specifically that he would, that he would create a nation from Abraham, that he would give that nation a place to dwell, and that he would use Abraham to bless all the families of the earth. There's a lot of question marks when you're reading Genesis about how, how is that actually going to work out? If you didn't know the rest of the story, you'd wonder, how is this going to work? How is Abraham going to bless all the nations? How, how does that play out? And so we go on in the story. God reiterates those promises to Abraham's descendants, namely here in verse 2, to Isaac and to Jacob. But before we run too quickly past Isaac, we just need to remember that even Abraham's first descendant was a little bit of an issue. Because you'll remember that God promised Abraham, okay, I'm going to make a huge nation out of you. And in, in, in one of those descendants from you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. That requires at least starting with one descendant. And Abraham and Sarah, if you remember, they were childless. It was a problem. They got older. In fact, they got significantly older. So much so that they were confused as to how God could fulfill his promises And I don't know if you remember, but when the angel visits uh, Abraham and Sarah and announces to them that you are actually going to physically have a child, do you remember what Sarah does? She laughs well into her 90s. That's a funny one. That's pretty hilarious. They would make a documentary, honestly. Like, that's a weird, that's weird. It's not normal. In fact, it would be miraculous. Because the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham at the very outset requires a miracle. Something's going on here. Of course, Isaac is born. God is faithful to his promises. And so here, even when you just read in verse 2 about Abraham fathering Isaac and Isaac fathering Jacob, Jacob fathering Judah and his brothers, we immediately think about, you know, it wasn't that simple. Man, God had to do a work to see his promises come to fruition. The story goes on, and it takes an unpleasant turn in verse 3. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. That story of Judah fathering Perez and Zerah, that, that is not a pleasant story. And Tamar had to deceive. It's, it's really a sad story. She had to deceive her own father-in-law in order for the, the line of Abraham to continue. And yet, even in the midst of Judah's failure and, and sin, God's care and his sovereignty is still on display. Tamar is the first of several women referenced in Jesus' genealogy. Just to make a point, we're going to come back to that in just a few minutes about these ladies who are included here. 
But Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, and we are off to the races. Verse 4, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Uh-oh, Rahab, now we're remembering something from the Old Testament. We've already gotten now to the, to the book of Joshua. And as God promised Abraham, his, his people, his, his nation would have a place to live. He had to drive out the Canaanites before they could take possession of that land. And so in Joshua, the Israelites arrive, and it's not so simple. Because, man, it was a walled city, Jericho. And, and those, they were well-seasoned in defending their city, and the Israelites were afraid. And so as they spied out that particular land, there was one. She was not a woman of high repute in the city. And yet she recognized that the God of Israel was the real deal. And it was better for her to, to hitch her wagon to him than to any of the Canaanite gods and goddesses. And so she did. And so here she is honored for that by being included in the genealogy of Jesus. Solomon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. And once again, we're reminded of that story of God's faithfulness after the book of Judges, in the time of the Judges. Ruth and her faithfulness. And then Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. You see, Jesus fulfills all of God's promises. And in Act 1 here of the genealogy, we learn specifically that Jesus fulfills God's promises to bless all people through Abraham. To bless all people through Abraham. Yes, all people. Even outcasts. You see, there's a story going on that goes all the way back to Genesis that is God, yes, redeeming his lost world and rescuing sinners. But as we think about that story, that story is the story of God sovereignly acting within history. And so as Jesus arrives, Matthew says, listen, if you're going to know, if you're going to think about Jesus' birth, if you're going to think about the incarnation, you need to remember your Old Testament history and how faithful God is and how Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises that he made to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth. You see, God's plan has always been to save and to advance the cause of salvation despite our sinfulness. There's comfort that we can take in that. Because frankly, sometimes we might doubt whether or not God is at work. Just, again, being candid, you know, that's not something that we usually lead with on a Sunday morning. Hey, how you doing? Well, I'm doubting God's at work, but I'm here. I showed up, Right? But sometimes, when, when we're, especially when we're facing significant trials in our lives, or especially when we failed and we're struggling with sin, we might just wonder, God, where are you? And there are so many twists and turns in that Old Testament history that's abbreviated here for us. So many twists and turns where you could easily wonder, God, are, are you there? Are you at work? And this genealogy just reminds us, hey, just so you haven't forgotten, in case you forget, Right? God's still at work. He's faithful and he's trustworthy. You can trust the Lord. We could kind of focus in a little bit more on the story of Ruth and how God blessed, how God provided in that kinsman redeemer, Boaz. There's an Old Testament law that talks about how if you're in a particular situation where you have to sell yourself into slavery or you have to sell the, the, the tribal land because of a debt, that another member of the family has the right and obligation to step in and to pay off that debt in order to redeem the land or to redeem the people who have sold themselves into slavery. 
And, and so there's this opportunity for that to happen. And I don't know if you remember the story of, of Ruth, but Boaz, you know, he is a distant relative and he has the opportunity to redeem. But there's another relative who's actually got a closer connection and his name in Ruth is Poloni Almoni, which is basically Hebrew for so-and-so. He's like, this guy, this guy, this guy won't do his thing. This guy won't step in and redeem. This guy won't rescue those that are in need that he is related to. And so Boaz does what this guy should have done. And when Boaz does that in Ruth, it's such a beautiful picture of God's provision, not only in that moment, but it's a foreshadowing of what the Messiah himself would do. Because the Messiah is, quite literally, our kinsman redeemer. That as he shares humanity with us, he is the closest relative who can solve the problem that we have, the problem of sin. You see, God fulfills his promises to bless all people through Abraham in Christ. He does that. He does that through Jesus being our kinsman redeemer. People may fail us, but Christ never will. And yes, he fulfills these promises even to outcasts. So we've got women referenced in the genealogy of Jesus. We've got Gentile women referenced in the genealogy uh, of Jesus. And we've got women of less than stellar track record referenced in the genealogy of Jesus. What's the point? Well, I think there's a point very early being made in the Gospel of Matthew that just so we're all clear, Jesus the Messiah isn't just for Israel. Jesus the Messiah isn't just for people who have their act together. He's not just for Italians and the Dutch and the Norwegians, okay? He's come for us all. He's come for us all. And it, it, you, know, you might think, ah, you know, but so-and-so, they're pretty far gone. Or maybe you think, you know what, I'm pretty far gone. But I'll tell you what, if Tamar's in this list, okay, and Rahab's in this list, then there's room for you. It's just a reminder. Listen, God's at work. And yeah, you might think, I've blown it. I've failed in this way. And very likely, yes, you have. But don't forget that the message of the gospel is not about you earning your right to be in God's family. It's about Jesus making it possible for any to be forgiven and to be welcomed home. So yes, Jesus fulfills God's promises to bless all people through Abraham, even outcasts. Now that's act one that gets us from Abraham to King David. Now, in Act 2, we pick it up in in the middle of verse 6 there, where we run on and we see from David down to the exile. So King David, right, uh, in in verse 6, right there in the middle, David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam, Rehoboam fathered Abijah, Abijah fathered Asa, Asa fathered Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, Joram fathered Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham, Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Ammon, Ammon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So in Act 2 there, we go from King David all the way through to the exile. Now, why, does, why is David significant? Well, you might remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God promised David that one of his descendants would reign forever. And so there was this kind of lingering question about which descendant of David is that going to be? And you might remember our series through First and Second Kings where we walked through all of these different kings and we talked about how some of them were good models, good foreshadowing of the coming greater son of David. They were good kings, like for the most part Hezekiah or Josiah, right? Kings that could be looked up to. 
Other kings, however, were not so good. In fact, they were downright wicked and they led the nation in idolatry. And so they showed the need for the greater son of David, of how Israel's kings had failed and could not fulfill those promises. So you got the promise to Abraham. There's going to be one coming from Abraham who will bless all the nations of the earth. Okay. And then we get a little bit more clarity. He's going to come from the line of David. He's going to be a king. Now the expectations go up a little bit. Okay. Now it's going to be a king who's going to come. And then every king that was born, they were like, this guy? He's not the one. Or maybe he was pretty good, but still we're not there yet. You see, in Act 2, we see Jesus fulfills God's promise to reign through David. To reign. He fulfills God's promise to reign. Jesus isn't just Israel's king. He's the king over all kings. Which means we can't talk about Jesus without talking about him being our king. Now you might be thinking, hold on a second, Pastor Ryan. This is the United States. We don't do kings, right? For the moment. Maybe we will do kings. I don't know. You, know, you never know the political landscape, how things are going to change. But the fact is, our political system shows that we're looking for wise, trustworthy, capable leaders. Can I get an amen on that? We're looking for wise, capable, trustworthy leaders. We haven't found them yet. <laughs> like, we're looking now. We've been blessed with some good leaders. But what's been abundantly clear, even in our own nation's history, is that we don't have a perfect leader. Our entire system of government is designed on the assumption that our leaders are failed, are, are faulty, and will fail, right? That's how the whole system of checks and balances is designed. It is a wise and good system, right? But that doesn't change the fact that, man, if we could just have a wise capable, trustworthy leader, boy, we'd elect him in a heartbeat. Well, we'll never elect him because he's already king. And see, the connection of the arrival of Jesus to the promises God made to David emphasizes Jesus' rightful authority over not just Israel, but again, all of creation, including our lives. And so as soon as we start talking about Jesus as king, we just need to pause and ask the question, hold on a second. If Jesus is really king... Yes, uh, our country may not be in submission to him. And yes, uh, my neighborhood may not be submission to him. And indeed, all of my family may not be in submission to him. But am I? Am I in submission to Jesus as my king? He's no evil dictator. He is truly the wise, trustworthy leader that we have always needed. And so that, that all those names that I just read, right, that are Matthew lists here, we just kind of walk through the history. And it's a compressed list. It's not the whole list. But you just walk through those names and you go, okay, wow, yeah, he points to some of the goodness that, that we'll see in Christ. Or man, that guy failed big time and he totally blew it. But as we walk through that list, we just recognize we, we do need that ultimate authority in Christ. And Matthew says, we have him in Christ. He's here. He has come. So what's your relationship to him? You know, Matthew, as he writes his gospel, the whole gospel is, is an argument. And he's trying to argue with people and say, listen, put your faith in Jesus and follow him. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's the takeaway, right? His argument is going to be that Jesus is the, the promised Messiah who brings the kingdom of heaven for us. That, that's, that's who he is. So he's going to argue that from Jesus' life, his teachings, his ministry, and how those fulfill some of the Old Testament prophecies. But as we even just get started in the Gospel of Matthew, we have to recognize Matthew has an agenda. It's not just so you would be more informed about Jesus. It's so that you would trust him for the forgiveness of your sins and that you would follow him and submit to him. 
Now, again, in our culture, submission, you know, that's a word that's not very popular because we want to have our own rights. We determine our own destiny, right? We are our own gods in this country. But man, you spend some time being your own God, you'll find out pretty quick that you didn't create the universe. Jesus fulfills God's promise to reign through David because he is the king over all kings. The application point here is, what about me? Am I in submission to him? Submitting to Jesus means acknowledging his authority. It means confessing your rebellion against him. Call that sin when you rebel against the king. The king says do this and you don't, right? That's, that's sin. So it means com- confessing your rebellion against him, acknowledging his authority. But it also means changing your behavior based on his character. So you go, okay, King Jesus has called me to this, so I'm going to live this way. King Jesus has called me to this, so I'm going to speak in this way. King Jesus has called me to this, so I'm going to act in this way. And I'm not going to do X, Y, or Z. The kings of Israel serve as models, uh, as you know, little sneak previews of Jesus, but they also serve as warnings for why we need Jesus so bad. You can't read that list without just being aware of, you know what, many of these guys failed miserably. And they failed because they gave in to idolatry. They worshipped the gods of their culture. And I think that warning stands today. Even as we come to celebrate, you know, in the Christmas season, we come to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We do a lot of really fun things, and rightly so. But we just have to be careful that we're not getting caught up in worshiping the gods of our culture. The gods of money, the gods of material possessions, the gods of achievement or status, the god of career. Even the God of family can sometimes derail us. You know, they get to the exile, and as they get to the exile, the story's not looking too good. Yes, God was faithful to Abraham and his descendants up through David, and David, like, it was like the glory days of Israel, but then after David, you know, things got pretty bad, the kingdom split, and then by the end of uh, this part of the genealogy, verse 11, then they've been taken into exile in Babylon. And so, well, what's going to happen now? The nations basically cease to exist. What about the promise to rescue through a descendant of Abraham? What about the promise for a son of David to reign? How can he reign if there's no nation And so watch the third act here in this narrative, or in this genealogy, starting in verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel led the return to the land, by the way. Verse 13, and we don't really know much about the rest of these guys. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim. Akim fathered Eliad. Eliad fathered Eliezer, Eliezer fathered Mathan, Mathan fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Now let's just pause right there. So we don't know most of those guys. We do know Zerubbabel. But what happens is Israel returns from exile to the land, and things are, are good, but they're not great. They return. God's been faithful to fulfill his promise to them, to return them to the land, but they're still waiting for that arriving Messiah. They're still anticipating him. And so what happens is history goes on, and there was this expectation that he would arrive. And then finally in verse 16, note how he words it. Matthew says, Jacob fathered Joseph, who was the husband of Mary. It's very important to note that Joseph did not father Jesus. He is not the physical father of Jesus, but he is the husband of Mary. And Mary gave birth to Jesus, 
who is called the Messiah. It's like, we finally get there, verse 16. You're like, I barely could listen to you read those names, Pastor Ryan. Like, imagine living through all that history, all that anticipation. There's a reason we sing, come thou long-expected Jesus, right? Because after the entrance of sin into the world, and after God's promises to bring the Redeemer, kind of people were going, well, let's go. But in God's perfect timing, he's sovereign over history, even through sin and failures, ultimately to bring about the birth of the Messiah at just the right time. And we read that during our singing portion this morning, but in Galatians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul just underlines that at the right time, Jesus was born. You see, Jesus fulfills not only God's promise to bless all people through Abraham, even outcasts, he fulfills God's promise to reign through David. But thirdly this morning, Jesus fulfills God's promise to restore. The Messiah is the rescuer. He's the one that restores And so as Israel came back from exile, the idea is, okay, they're back. Like, now what? And now it's time to deal with the actual issue, the issue of sin. Now, there's emphasis in verse 17 on God's sovereignty over this whole process. Watch verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon and to the Messiah, 14 generations. Now listen, you can go back and count. There's, it's it, there's, it's uh, using inclusive counting, okay, to get to 14 for each of those sections, but that's how they counted it. So you count, you can get to 14, 14, 14. Listen, some of those names, as I said, are compressed. So they, they kind of edited the history there, just left a few names out in order to get to the 14. Why would Matthew do that? Because he wants to show us that the advancement from God's promises to Abraham, his promises to David, to the arrival of the Messiah has been an orderly advance. It's been according to God's plan. It was designed this way. That's why he emphasizes the three 14s. It was designed this way. Jesus fulfills God's promise to restore precisely because God is sovereign and his plan continues. And so really, you think about anticipation, anticipation. The Messiah needs to come. The Messiah needs to come. Well, finally, the Messiah comes. And what does that say? It says God exists. God is sovereign over history. And God cares about you and me. And so, yes, Joseph takes Mary to be his wife. And yes, Mary gives birth to a miraculous child who is the word who became flesh. And that child's mission is quite simple. It's to restore everything. All my hopes, all my hopes are bound to his birth, his cross, his shame. Yes. Because Jesus has come not simply to fix one problem. He has come to fix all the problems. Which is so cool because, listen, we come here, we gather for worship. The fact is we all have the problem of sin. And because we live in relationship to others, that sin impacts others. And because we live in a broken universe, we're going to to be negatively impacted and suffer because of the reality of sin. So we all have these issues. And we might think this will solve it, or that will solve it, and this will fix it, or that will fix it. But the fact is, Jesus came to fix all of it. And we got to have, I think, a big picture of what Jesus came to accomplish in his mission. He's not a Messiah. He's the Messiah, right? Uh, I don't know how your Wi-Fi is at your house. Anybody have trouble with Wi-Fi at your house? Yeah, yeah. If you don't have trouble with your Wi-Fi, I want to talk to you. I know the Andersons don't, but besides them, I know everybody else has tr- tr- troubles with your Wi-Fi. Um, we, of course, have been watching the World Cup, 
And because of modern technology, you know, we get our, these World Cup channels through the Wi-Fi. So the Wi-Fi goes down in the middle of the World Cup. This is a crisis, folks. This is like, this is DEFCON 5. This is as bad as it gets, right? We've got to solve this issue. And, you know, listen, I mean, the, you, okay, I love technology and all that. But if I'm the, the Wi-Fi fix-it guy at the house, we have a problem, right? <laughs> Because if I can't say, hey, Siri, fix the Wi-Fi, it'll work, then it's not going to get fixed, basically, right? That's the issue. I mean, I, that, those problems, it's like they're perpetual issues with the Wi-Fi, and I am not equipped to fix that. So I really shouldn't have the burden of trying to fix that. Can we all get an amen, right? I need professional help to fix that Wi-Fi. Sometimes that's how we are in life, though. We're going through life, and we have these challenges, and we're thinking, I need to fix that, or I, don't, I certainly shouldn't ask for help, and I certainly shouldn't uh, need to rely on others. I can fix it. I need to tweak this, tweak that, or whatever. And all the while, here's the design, 14, 14, 14, God's sovereign over all of history. He sent the Messiah, the rescuer, the redeemer, to solve all problems, and we're hesitant to trust in him because we think we can do it. We think we can fix it ourselves. Or we just don't want to admit that we need help. Or we're too embarrassed by the fact that we need help. And so we, we, don't, we don't trust him. But Jesus fulfills God's promise to restore. He fulfills it because he is God in the flesh. Matthew's going to make that point very clearly for us. In the next few weeks, we'll see it. Even in the time of Christ, though, there were false messiahs. There was the kind of that air of anticipation in, in the culture of Israel, and so they were looking for the Messiah. And so every once in a while, some random guy would claim to be the Messiah. He'd try to lead a rebellion against Rome, and it would fail. Today we have false messiahs. Sometimes they're people who kind of think that they're God's answer to all of our problems, but most of the time the false messiahs are just things that we're really excited about in our hearts that we put too much of our hope in. Again, we think the money the next phase of life, right? the, the, the possessions, the relationship, whatever, the job, it's going to solve all my problems. Even, even medical help, we think, oh, this is going to fix it all. And ultimately, it can't. But Jesus is the Messiah who died for our sins and rose from the dead. To restore us. To restore creation. To fix all the problems Sometimes Christmas reveals the, the things in our heart that we want so badly. And it might reveal that in like ways where we're chasing hard after something material, some gift, some you know, monetary issue, whatever. Or it might reveal it negatively and like we're, we're really hurt and we're thinking about lost loved ones or we're thinking about what we wish we had that we don't have and this circumstance isn't right and, and look at that Instagram post, that family must be perfect and why isn't our family like that and all those kinds of things and we long for, we want all this restoration. But the fact is, What our hearts desire more than anything, whether we know it or not, is Jesus. And here he is, Matthew says, the arrival, the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, God's promises to David, the one who's come to restore us entirely. How does Jesus do that? Well, we have to read the rest of Matthew, which we will. But just to give you the short version, Jesus goes to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and our failure. And as he dies, yes, he answers God's wrath for our sin. But as he does so, he doesn't just die, he rises from the dead. And the message is very clear. By putting our faith in Jesus, we are not only forgiven of our sins, but we are granted access 
to new life in him, spiritual life and physical life, because his resurrection is the first of many, where we will be raised to life, to live with him forever. That's the promise of the New Testament. That is the promise of the unified message of the Bible. And that is how Jesus will restore. Maybe you're here today and you might confess, yeah, all my hopes aren't in Jesus. They're in the money or it's, it's in the career or it's in the degree or whatever. But as you think about that, just remember that you have an opportunity today to not only receive forgiveness of your sins by confessing, yes, I have failed and I'm a sinner, but you also have the ability in Christ to receive this gift of new life, which is why Christmas is so fun to celebrate. Because the birth of Jesus really brings to light the gift of life that Jesus is to us, not only in his life, but in what he's done for ours. Jesus fulfills God's promise to restore. Imagine you're a child and your special guest is on the way. So you take your position at the lookout spot, on the couch, in the window, wherever it is, right? And you're so excited. Grandma and grandpa are coming, right? And maybe they live far away so you don't get to see them often. And that just makes it all the more exciting that here they come because they'll probably be bringing gifts. Can I get an amen? Absolutely. Let's go, right? So here they go. They're on their way, and you're so excited, and you're looking, and you're looking, and then they finally arrive, and then they come in, and they come in, and instead of greeting them, and instead of giving them hugs, you just stay there at the lookout spot, looking. Maybe the next car. They'll be in the next car. Grandma and Grandpa are standing there with their gifts in their bags, ready to give them to you. And yet you're looking. Maybe it's the next car that goes by. Maybe they'll be here. Maybe it's the next one. Maybe the... And Grandma and Grandpa, we're right here. What are you doing? You're looking for fulfillment in the wrong place. And I think, frankly, many days that's us. There we are, searching, looking, reaching, grasping. All the while, the Messiah has already come. He's here. He's taught. He's modeled what life looks like. Most importantly, he's, he's paid that penalty for our failure and he's risen from the dead. And he said, trust in me and I will grant you new life and I will fulfill you. And there we are looking out the window. Maybe money will do it. Well, maybe, maybe this next phase of life will do it. Maybe if I just had, if I could just lose the weight, if I could just be stronger, if I could just, if I could just, if I could just, that'll do it. And all the while, here is Jesus the fulfillment of all of God's promises, who by God's grace has been announced to us. I don't know if you've ever read Charles Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol. He's got a great, there's, there's a lot of great lines in A Christmas Carol, let's be honest. This one is outstanding. He says, It is good to be children sometimes. It's okay to be excited <laughs> about Jesus' arrival. It is good to be children sometimes. And never better than at Christmas when its mighty founder was a child himself. Listen, you think about Jesus being born. You need to remember that he was born in fulfillment of God's promises to David and to Abraham. He was born to bless all the people of the earth, even outcasts like us. He was born to reign. He is the king over all kings and he has authority over your life. But man, he was born to restore, to rescue. And by his death and resurrection, we have access to forgiveness and so much more. 
It's okay to be excited about it. In fact, it's right that we should be excited about it. And it's certainly worth celebrating. Would you pray with me and we'll ask God to help us celebrate him this year. Lord, we thank you so much for this genealogy. We thank you for just this reminder of your faithfulness throughout history to fulfill your promises. And Lord, we might confess that uh, although a lot of those names are, are unfamiliar to us, the overall point here is clear. And we pray that you would help us not to miss the point. That Lord Jesus, when you took on flesh, took the form of a servant, and became a man for us, you did that in fulfillment of your promises in the Old Testament. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the son of David and the son of Abraham. We thank you that through you, all the nations of the earth can be blessed. We thank you that by, because of the gospel, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will trust in you. We thank you that you are the fulfillment of the promises to reign through David. And Lord, we thank you for your authority. We pray that you would help us. And Lord, I pray for those who are here who are struggling to submit to you, that even today, that they would confess their failures and look to you and see not, a, not an angry taskmaster, but see a gracious and loving God who went to the cross out of love for us. Lord, we, we pray that you would help to transform our lives and help us to grow in dependence on you. Lord, we thank you that you've come to restore. We thank you for what the return from exile in Babylon pictures with Israel's history, that you haven't forgotten them, that you are still at work, and yet it anticipates that greater work of restoration. Even what we just covered in the book of Revelation, Lord, the, the beauty of the new creation and the eternal peace we'll have in the new Jerusalem, we look forward to that, living in our resurrected bodies with you forever, enjoying that eternal life. But Lord, Today we ask that you would help us not to miss who you are and certainly to say no to those idols that we're tempted to look to. Lord, help us to be excited for you and to, yes, sing and to rejoice as we remember your birth, which signified this central moment in history where the son of David and the son of Abraham took on flesh to rescue us. Lord, help us to respond in faith to your word, we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen.